0: This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Legends of the Samurai by Hiroaki Sato. Despite the somewhat cheesy-sounding name, this is actually an excellent primary source compendium, which covers the entire history of the samurai class, all the way from the classical period up to the end of the Tokugawa Shogunate. I think it's a fantastic read, and I use it heavily for teaching in my own class, so if you're at all interested, go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your copy. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 405, The Road Not Taken. One of the great truisms of history is that it's hard for us to understand because we already know how it will end. That knowledge, in turn, lends everything an aura of inevitability. There's no other way it could have turned out once you understand the factors involved. Except, of course, that the conclusions that flow from viewing the world that way are pretty unsettling, at least to me. I'm not a determinist, and I think it's pointless to view history that way. After all, if everything we do is predetermined by remote past events anyway, what's the point of trying to learn anything from the past at all? So I suppose if you are a determinist, you should find another podcast to listen to. Or don't, it's not like you have a choice anyway. Personally, I think that part of the point of studying history is to derive lessons or engage with debates relevant to the present. I think that's one of the most central pieces of the case for why history will always be relevant. When you take that view, it's important to emphasize that nothing about how the past turned out was predetermined. Take, for example, the Tokugawa shogunate. Its ignominious and rapid collapse in 1868 is often treated as a foregone conclusion, the result of countless external pressures and internal failures, By 1868, for sure, I think it's fair to say that the writing was on the wall, so to speak. But that doesn't mean that this outcome was predetermined, that it was always inevitable that Tokugawa rule would not survive the challenges it faced. Instead, that outcome was the result of compounding choices by leaders of the Tokugawa state, the small cadre of samurai close to the shogun who actually wrote and implemented policy. They were the ones in a position to address the bakufu's faltering position, and they were the ones who ultimately proved unable or unwilling to take the steps necessary to save the shogunate. Why did they fail? Well, the question of why the Tokugawa shogunate collapsed is a big one, and we've talked about it a fair amount on the podcast before. See that 17-episode series on the Meiji Restoration way back in the day. But today we are going to consider things from a somewhat different angle by looking at one of the last attempts by the bakufu to seriously reform, the Tenpo Reforms, which were by pretty much any measure disastrous failures. What were these reforms? Why did they fail? What did the Tenpo Reform leadership view as the problems facing the Tokugawa shogunate and how did they try to address those problems, and what can we learn from it all? But of course, before we get to that, we have to refresh ourselves briefly on just what we consider today to be the problems that ultimately brought down the Tokugawa shogunate. What were the problems these reformers needed to fix? Well, of course, the first thing that tends to pop into most of our minds when considering this question is the foreign issue, the growing power of Western empires in East Asia, and the threat those empires posed to the Tokugawa state. While the most obvious manifestation of this threat, the arrival of an American fleet under Matthew Perry in Edo Bay, would not come until ten years after the Tempo reforms ended, it was still very clear by the late 1830s that the foreigners were becoming an issue. The potential destabilization of Japan by foreigners was, of course, a long-standing concern. This was the impetus behind the careful controls imposed on foreign trade, by the Tokugawa, as well as the ban on Christianity, among other policies. But those policies had been born out of strength. In the 1600s, I think it's fair to say that a Western power invading Japan would have been, to put it mildly, unlikely to succeed, and of course during the 1600s, the Qing dynasty in China did defeat Russia in conflicts over Central Asia. But by the 1800s, the balance of power had changed substantially, particularly with the advent of the so-called Second Industrial Revolution and the massive expansion of Western firepower and military technology. But it's worth noting that it's not just the foreign crisis at play here. The Tokugawa state also faced major internal issues, many of which were, in the final analysis, economic. For starters, the bakufu itself was financially on thin ice. Way back in the early 1600s, when Tokugawa Ieyasu had begun the massive redistribution of land intended to secure his hold over Japan, he arranged things so that between the shogun, his extended family, and their close allies, those aligned with the Tokugawa regime would control something like 60% of the nation's overall economic output as measured at the time. That's a pretty overwhelming economic balance of power, but the thing is, Japan's economy did not stay static after this point. First, of course, overall agricultural productivity increased around Japan as new technologies and techniques made their way into the country or were developed by enterprising farmers. And they spread far more easily because Japan was one of the most literate pre-modern societies in the world. And you'd think this would be good, right? Well, for most peasants, it was, but for the samurai who extracted taxes from them, this was kind of an issue. For starters, these peasants had gotten savvier and savvier about expanding their productivity in ways that were harder for samurai to detect, for example, hidden fields in mountainous areas that would have previously been not cultivatable. Tricks like the building of hidden fields made it harder for samurai to extract accurate tax revenue from their holdings, particularly given that samurai as a social class were largely confined to the major castle towns, so they had little familiarity with the countryside and had to rely on local peasants themselves who knew the area on the rare occasion they ventured out. Plus, remember, samurai stipends were paid in koku, in bushels of rice, but you obviously can't spend that at a store, you can't haul a rice bag to the counter and say, hey, can you make some change for me here? so rice had to be converted into cash. There were city merchants who specialized in just this, receiving permission to collect stipends on behalf of samurai and then convert them into gold, silver, and bronze currency, in exchange, of course, for a small fee. But as productivity went up and the supply of rice increased around Japan, its value also went down, that's just supply and demand. And since taxes were paid in rice, and it was proving real hard to expand tax income even as the economy grew, that meant in terms of real cash value, each year's stipends were worth less and less. Plus, for complicated reasons that we don't have time to get into right now, lands that had previously been peripheral in Japan saw the greatest productivity gains, and those were the lands the shogun didn't hold most of the time. And this was compounded by the substantial ceremonial requirements for the bakufu. For example, the requirement that the shogun meet every gift given by a vassal with a more expensive gift of his own to prove his own greatness. Meant that over time, the Tokugawa treasury started to run dry. It wasn't just the shogun who was running out of money, though. This was a problem for the wider samurai class, too. All samurai were paid with these fixed stipends in rice, the value of which was not adjusted for the changing market value of rice. And that meant the actual income of samurai families was in essence pretty much always going down by the late Tokugawa period. Of course, you could try and make up the difference by getting promoted, so to speak, by landing a new job or posting based on your merit and with it a higher salary. Technically, this was possible to do, but the number of merit-driven jobs was very, very low, so the competition to get them was fierce. By some estimates, about half of the direct retainers of the Shogun were functionally unemployed, as there were just not enough jobs within the Shogunal hierarchy to go around. Getting one of the few open gigs required connections to influential men, as well as, of course, a vacancy opening up, One contemporary observer described the futile-seeming process of attempting to acquire one of these jobs as, quote, like trying to hollow out bamboo with a lantern wick, unquote. If you couldn't land one of those jobs, there were other ways to supplement your income through things like taking up a trade on the side, or pawning family heirlooms, or renting out part of your family compound, or even selling your samurai status— by offering to adopt commoners in exchange for cash, or running martial arts schools that took on commoners. But of course, all of these choices were considered pretty demeaning. It was not the social role of samurai to do craft work. pawning your family heirlooms is, well, never a good look. Selling adoption rights to commoners was both socially shameful and, at points, technically illegal, though the practice became so widespread that eventually the ban had to be lifted. Teaching martial arts to anyone willing to pay was at least more in keeping with a martial way of life, though this tended to be frowned on by traditionalists, who rejected the idea that commoners should learn these things as a violation of the natural order. And of course, renting out your family lands was dangerous too. One Tokugawa Bannerman ended up exiled in 1825 when it came to light that one of his renters was running an illegal brothel inside of his family compound. Now, this was not an exhaustive list of ways samurai families tried to make good on their financial losses. One story that always stuck with me was women in a samurai family shaving their heads to sell their hair for wigs. But no matter how these families tried to make up the difference, the fact remained. By the logic of the era, samurai should not have to do this. Their job was to be a ruling class, governing and setting a moral example in exchange for financial support. Now, they were fighting a constant financial uphill battle. And of course, this experience was made all the worse because while samurai suffered, they could see their so-called social inferiors doing better than ever. Particularly in the case of merchants and townsmen, whom they shared the big cities with, the disparity was striking. Samurai were being forced to do all manner of undignified things, And meanwhile, merchants and actors and all sort of godforsaken people were living like they were lords in their own right. Now, the factors I have just listed are not an exhaustive list of the problems the Tokugawa shogunate faced, but at least in my opinion, these are the most pressing ones. The foreign problem, of course, combined with dwindling government accounts, combined with the vast majority of samurai cut off from upward mobility, and watching their social inferiors grow far wealthier than they ever were. So, how did the shogunate attempt to fix this? Well, here is where we get to the story of the Tempo reforms and their chief architect, Mizuno Tadakuni. Mizuno Tadakuni was born in July of 1794 in Edo. As the son of a lordly family, he, like all other lordly families, remained full time in Edo as hostages to his father's good behavior. Tadakuni was the second son of Mizuno Tadaaki, the lord of Karatsu Domain in what's now Saga Prefecture in Kyushu. The Mizuno family were also what is called Fudai Daimyo, or Inner Lords. They were a family with a history of loyalty to the Tokugawa, which predated the Tokugawa's successful conquest of Japan. As a result, the Mizuno were considered politically trustworthy and received special favors, including access to high-level posts within the Tokugawa regime. Tadakuni was not initially the Mizuno clan heir, but in 1805, his other brother Yoshimaru died of a childhood disease. As a result, Tadakuni became the heir. He was, by all accounts, ambitious from the get-go. When his father died in 1812, and Tadakuni became the new head of the Mizuno family, he wasted no time trying to seek advancement in the best way open to him, by climbing the hierarchy of jobs within the Tokugawa bakufu. It took him until 1816 to actually manage to get a job, a sign of how competitive things were, but in that year he managed to land a post as one of the Soshaban, a title often translated as Master of Ceremonies. In essence, the job of the various Soshaban was to help MC the shogun's various audiences with his retainers by organizing the attendees, calling out their names and just generally making sure that these ceremonial meetings between lord and vassal went smoothly. A post as Soshaban was normally a good jumping-off point into higher-level jobs within the Bakufu, but here Mizuno ran into the first of many career roadblocks. Karatsu Domain's location in Kyushu was very close to the all-important foreign trade port of Nagasaki. The holders of Karatsu Domain were expected to help contribute towards the defense and management of that city. That responsibility was in turn considered important enough that said domain holders would generally not be offered higher-ranking jobs in the bakufu, they had enough on their plate already. But obviously that was not going to work for the ambitious Mizuno, so in 1817 he put in a rather unusual request. He asked to be moved from his current domain in Karatsu to Hamamatsu Domain in what's now Shizuoka Prefecture on Honshu's Pacific coast. Ostensibly, the two domains shared the same official rank as measured in their yearly income in koku or bushels of rice, 70,000 bushels of rice each to be precise. The move would have no effect, therefore, on Mizuno's position in the Tokugawa hierarchy, and as a bonus, Hamamatsu was much closer to Edo and the center of political power. The thing is, though, that those economic power rankings were wildly out of date. In practice, Karatsu domain had an effective income of about 250,000 koku. Hamamatsu had about 100,000 less. That wouldn't hurt Mizuno too badly, but it would be rough on the incomes of the samurai sworn to his service, and they were by all accounts not very happy. Indeed, one of Mizuno's senior counselors, Nihonmatsu Yoshikado, ended up committing suicide in protest against the move, but Mizuno was not dissuaded. Moving to Hamamatsu had the desired effect. The same year, Mizuno got a promotion to Jisha Bugyo, or Magistrate for Shrines and Temples. He would proceed to shoot up the hierarchy of the bakufu in a rather meteoric fashion, serving as the castellan of Osaka Castle and the city magistrate for Kyoto, before joining the Roju, or Council of Elders, in 1828. The Roju were, in many ways, the most influential people in Japan. As the shogun's inner circle of advisors, they obviously had a lot of power, and if the shogun was ever incompetent or disinterested in rule, they basically ran the country themselves. Eleven years after this, Mizuno was the senior-most member of the Roju Council, and two years after that, he essentially became the most important person in Japan when the current patriarch of the Tokugawa family, Tokugawa Ienari, finally died. Ienari had technically stepped down as shogun in favor of his son Ieyoshi back in 1837, but in practice everyone knew that Ienari still called the shots. Now that he was dead, the political landscape looked very different. You see, Tokugawa Ionari had something of a reputation as a party animal who was more excited about the privileges of being shogun than he was about actually, you know, accomplishing anything as the shogun. This isn't the same thing as saying he was totally disinterested in government, he just preferred a pretty static course for Japan, particularly in terms of social and economic policy. Now, Ienari was dead. His son Ieyoshi was a grown man at 48 and had already been shogun for almost four years, but never really had much of a chance to figure out what he wanted for himself. He had met Mizuno Tadakuni as a young man and was prepared to trust the senior roju to handle things. And things did need to be handled, because beyond all the general problems we've been talking about, the years right before Tokugawa Ienari's death, were marred by something known as the Tenpo Famine, traditionally dated from 1832 to 1836. You can pretty much guess what went wrong here just based on the name. Tenpo, by the way, is a reference to the Nengo, or era name of the period, the Tenpo Era having run from 1830 to 1844. The Tenpo Famine itself was caused by a few years of brutal weather mostly unseasonably wet and cold weather to the point of freak snowstorms during the summer, which constantly damaged crops before they could grow to full maturity. Most domains in Japan had at least some reserves on hand to distribute in case of bad harvest, but four years of bad harvests in a row, no one was really prepared for that. The famine itself was mostly confined to northern Honshu, but within that region it was devastating. The death toll is very hard to calculate, but it was almost certainly in the tens of thousands. The famine caused a great deal of social instability. Farmers in the north abandoned their villages to come to Edo and other big cities, figuring that farming was now a bust and deciding to try their hand at city life. Except the vast majority had no marketable skills in city life, resulting in an influx of starving refugees with no talents, taxing a pretty minimal social safety net. And while the famine itself had ended in the late 1830s, many of these people had never gone back to their villages, continuing to tax Edo's resources and cutting down on the productivity of the lands which samurai drew their already meager incomes from. Mizuno Tadakuni certainly had his work cut out for him, but he had a plan as well based on precedent from the past. Mizuno was a social conservative who believed the current problems of Japan stemmed in large part the breakdown of the traditional social order and Confucian social norms. If those norms could be restored, samurai placed back on top, peasants reminded of the importance of their roles in the countryside, frugality and dignity regarded as great virtues for all, the problems faced by Japan could be fixed. Mizuno was certainly not alone in that opinion. Japan had already gone through two major bakufu-driven reforms, the Kyoho reforms of the 1730s and the Kansei reforms of the 1790s, and both embraced socially conservative Confucian rhetoric. The Kansei reforms, in particular, were major models for Mizuno. So what did he actually do? What were the Tempo reforms, the last gasp effort to set the Tokugawa regime on a new course, though few knew this at the time? Well, to understand that, we're going to have to break them down into three categories. Social, economic, and then finally political and military reforms. I also want to note that given the fragmented nature of Tokugawa rule, Mizuno's reforms only affected the areas the Tokugawa shogunate controlled directly, particularly big cities like Edo. That's what we're going to focus on here. He did encourage the various lords of Japan to follow suit in their own territories, but his ability to force them to do that was, as we're going to see, very limited. So let's start with social reforms. Here Mizuno's main goal was to reverse what he saw as the socially unacceptable trend towards the undermining of class distinctions, which, based on his own education in Confucian politics, Mizuno believed undergirded any functional society. I'm going to quote here from Amy Stanley's excellent book, Stranger in the Shogun City, because I think she captures this very well. Quote, to Mizuno, as to previous shogunal administrators, reform was not only an administrative imperative, it was also a moral agenda and insistence that the people of Japan should return to an idealized past in which commoners respected their rulers and manifested their submission through frugality and diligence, Unquote. And this is highly ironic, given that, as Stanley also notes, Mizuno had a personal reputation as an inveterate gambler and womanizer who was also not above taking bribes. It is, frankly, unclear to me whether he was a political opportunist who just mirrored the rhetoric of frugality and submission because it was convenient, or if he had one hell of a case of self-blindness. The popular perception of him was definitely the former, but he certainly wouldn't have been the first samurai leader in Japanese history to unselfconsciously push the rhetoric of simplicity and frugality while living life as a spendthrift. In practice, this conservative social rhetoric meant that Mizuno pushed forward a series of edicts intended to rectify the morals of the Japanese people. Foremost among these were sumptuary laws. In other words, regulating what people could and could not wear. The Edo period was an era of, among other things, extreme fashion. Japan was wealthier than it had ever been. That meant that the people at large had more money to spend on nice clothes, accessories, and the like. But these ostentatious displays, particularly from non-samurai, offended traditional interpretations of Confucian principle in a few different ways. For starters, consumerism was a vice in its own right. Spending money on silk outfits where cotton would do was an unnecessary waste of household expenses that could be better put towards other family needs. That was particularly true if it was commoners doing the fancy dressing, which usually it was. Samurai were, beyond the upper echelons of the class, not doing great during this time. Merchants and townsmen were the ones who could afford to dress ostentatiously. And of course, this disparity between the well-dressed townsmen and the poorly-dressed samurai was a visual violation of the entire social order. If you were a down-on-your-luck samurai scrimping to get by, there was no better reminder of the disordered, at least from your perspective, nature of the times than seeing a commoner walk by you who was better dressed head-to-toe than you could ever afford. So Mizuno pushed forward new sumptuary laws banning anything he could think of that seemed to undermine samurai superiority. And I do mean anything. There were bans on commoners wearing silk, for example, but also, to provide a non-exhaustive list, bans on dolls over 9 inches tall, a frivolous luxury, potted plants, fine embroidery, dressing ostentatiously for major festivals, Umbrellas for men, a useless frivolity. Hairdressing services for women. Fine tobacco pipes of gold and silver, a ridiculous luxury, according to Mizuno. And, quote, printing the names of trifling people like sumo wrestlers, prostitutes, and kabuki actors, unquote, in guidebooks for the city of Edo. All of these policies were, of course, clearly intended to slap down the commoners whose luxuries had drawn the envy of the samurai class. To remind everyone in Japan just who was actually the ruling social class around these here parts. Now, this again was not that unusual. Similar proclamations, if not quite as extreme in scope, had accompanied the Kyoho and Kansei reforms decades earlier. However, generally those sumptuary laws had been rather lightly enforced. You get off with a nice warning. The Tempo ones were not only enforced, but enforced harshly. For example, during the cherry blossom viewing season of 1843, four commoner women in Osaka went to view the blossoms. Their outfits followed the tempo rules—cotton, not silk, no embroidery, basic hairstyles—but they were still arrested during their celebration because officials from the city magistrate's office considered their looks too showy. Their arrest was a particularly direct demonstration of the severity of the new rules, but it was not the only one. Thirty-six women were arrested at one time for violating the ban on women performing on stage, which was considered too sexual. That's why all kabuki roles were performed by men. The novelist, Tamanaga Shunsui, was arrested for obscenity, from what I can tell basically because he discussed sex at all in his work. Utagawa Kuniyoshi, the famous woodblock artist, was arrested for caricaturing the shogun and his advisors. Ryute Tanahiko, who created an updated version of the tale of Genji called Inaka Genji, was reprimanded by the government for undermining public morals. Probably the most famous victim, though, was the kabuki actor Ichikawa Ebizo V, one of the biggest names of his generation. His stage performances made him incredibly wealthy, complete with a mansion in Edo's theater district. He was banished from Edo for life for, in essence, being too visibly successful in how he lived. Speaking of the theater, when said theater district burned down in the fall of 1841, not uncommon in a city made of wood, Mizuno took the opportunity to proclaim that it could not be rebuilt. Kabuki theaters would have to be relocated outside of the upstanding neighborhoods of Edo proper and over to what's now Asakusa. That part of the city was considered far more low-class. For example, that's also where the Yoshiwara, the licensed brothel quarter, was. Mizuno wanted the theater, which, like sex work, was a danger to public morals, kept away from the people of quality. I could go on in this vein for quite a bit. There was also a big crackdown on unlicensed sex work outside of the Yoshiwara, for example, which previously had gone on very openly, but I think you get the idea. Mizuno was, in essence, looking to reassert his idealized notion of a samurai dominated society where frugality was the norm and ostentatiousness a serious sin. And this, among other things, had a terrible impact on the consumer economy of Edo, which brings us to Mizuno's economic goals, which were, in essence, to try and revive the shogun's account books by raising revenue and cutting costs. How did he do that? Once again, many of Mizuno's early reforms were carbon copies of old reform edicts from the Kyoho and Kansei era, for example, injunctions to cut costs at Edo Castle by avoiding excess wear on the castle's tatami mats. However, this did not, shock of shocks, quite do the trick on its own, and so Mizuno was forced to get creative. For example, he revived an old project from the Kansei reforms which had been abandoned for being too expensive dredging and cultivating the swamps in the Inbanuma area 40 miles northeast of Edo, in what's now Chiba Prefecture. The land, if it could be used, would be highly productive, probably worth at least 100,000 koku of rice annually. But that's a big if. The project was, again, very expensive, which is why it had been abandoned in the first place. Mizuno's solution was just to force local daimyo to help cover the costs not, as we'll see, a popular choice, particularly in conjunction with some of his later ideas. Mizuno's other economic ideas were seriously ambitious. Noting that agricultural tax income in the countryside was falling, Mizuno blamed farmers who were abandoning farming for jobs in the cities, and early in 1843 he proclaimed that, quote, Recently, more and more people from the countryside have come to Edo, and since they have acclimated to the customs of the city, have no desire to return home. This is extremely troubling. We will be conducting an entirely new census, and all these people will be sent back to their villages. Essentially, Mizuno wanted to partially deurbanize Edo and refocus more of the population on what he considered to be the real center of japan's economy agriculture. Mizuno's other big reform to the economy was his order to abolish the wholesalers' associations, which previously had been fixtures of the economic order. These were associations of merchants grouped around a specific commodity, say, cloth or medicine. In the past, they had been officially licensed by the shogun. The idea was that, say, a cloth wholesalers' association would pay for the right to get an official license to sell cloth in Edo, enabling that association to operate either as a monopoly or something close to it. In exchange, that association would now be bound closely to the government, since it relied on that license to continue to enjoy its monopoly. That meant the association could be counted on to, say, enforce government edicts related to sumptuary laws or price controls or whatever else. Mizuno, however became convinced that these associations were artificially jacking up prices to line their own pockets, and thus decided to outlaw them, hoping to drive down prices, revive the economy, and lower the shogunate's own expenses. Which might have actually worked, except that at the same time, Mizuno also tried to institute price controls on everything from blocks of tofu to bathhouse fees, all of which led to a thriving black market, because that's what tends to happen when you impose price controls. And in the short term, well, the wholesalers' associations had been, by virtue of being monopolies, the organizing force of the Japanese economy. So the immediate aftermath of their downfall was economic chaos, as new supply lines and chains of production had to be organized without the people who had once done all of that work behind the scenes. So far, I think it's fair to say that Mizuno's reforms are just more extreme versions of the sort of things you would see in previous reform drives during the Kyoho and Kansei eras, attempts to bring back an idealized past and reassert samurai authority. But it was in the realm of political reform that Mizuno's ideas departed most from the norm, and it was also here where he ran into his stiffest opposition. In a word, Mizuno was obsessed with strengthening the hand of the shogun relative to the daimyo, with centralizing the government. Which is odd, frankly, considering that he himself was a daimyo. I've heard a few different explanations for why Mizuno acted against his own class interest. Some suggest that he knew the other lords of Japan disdained him for his perceived power-hungriness and wanted to get revenge, even at his own expense, against his peers for these slights. The other theory, which to my mind makes more sense, is that news from the outside world, in particular the crushing defeat of China in the First Opium War, scared the absolute bejesus out of Mizuno. After all, if mighty China, a centralized empire, could be felled by the West, how could a divided and decentralized Japan possibly stand up to them? Clearly, regardless of his own interests, the system had to be changed to give Japan a fighting chance. Whatever motivated him, Mizuno became obsessed with strengthening the hand of the bakufu and reigning in Japan's regional lords. He ordered that any lord in Japan who had a commercial monopoly, for example, Satsuma, which had a sugar monopoly, out of its plantation islands in the northern Ryukyu chain, dissolve that monopoly and allow for free trade. After all, these monopolies could make local lords very rich, rich enough even to challenge the shogun's authority the ability of domain lords to reform their militaries by implementing Western technology was also curtailed. When one of the shogun's relatives, Tokugawa Narayaki, wrote Mizuno asking that the daimyo be allowed to build some Western-style warships using designs from a translated Dutch book, Mizuno slapped him down, saying that giving permission would make it too easy for lords to conspire against the Tokugawa, and that, quote, Who can tell what evils may ensue? For that exact same reason, Mizuno barred Nagasaki City Magistrate Takashima Shuhan, who had developed an interest in Western weaponry and begun to drill a small corps of samurai in Western military techniques, including cannon use, from passing his knowledge to regional lords who requested it to reinforce their own domain militaries. Mizuno's most famous assertion of the shogun's authority, though, was the so-called agechide, or Order of Supreme Wisdom, the most direct assertion of the shogun's power in over 200 years, I think it is fair to say. In the summer of 1843, Mizuno issued orders to daimyo and to bannermen in the vicinity of Edo, Osaka, and Nagaoka, a major port in what's now Niigata, announcing land confiscations, to ensure that the land surrounding these strategic areas was entirely under the Shogun's control. Those whose land was confiscated was told in due course they would receive new land in exchange, but no timeline for when that would happen was given, and given that a few of these orders explicitly stated the land was being confiscated because it was high yield, the likelihood of getting new land that was as good as what you'd had was pretty low. Technically, this was within the shogun's legal authority to do. Confiscating land and moving vassals around was an established power the shogun could wield to maintain his control. But it had not been done on this large of a scale for over 200 years, back when Tokugawa Ieyasu and his son and grandson were working to set up the basic Tokugawa system itself. Rightly or wrongly, many samurai had come to see their lands as theirs in their own right rather than a grant from the shogun that could be revoked at any time. When that grant was revoked, the outrage was pretty understandable. And this was what finally brought things to an end. Barraged by complaints from his own retainers, who were among those most affected by Mizuno's plan to bring all the land around Edo under his control, Tokugawa Ieyasu was forced to dismiss Mizuno Tadakuni as his advisor in the fall of 1843. It is a measure of just how hated Mizuno was by this point that when the news broke, a mob formed outside his mansion in Edo, shouting and cheering. Eventually, they began throwing stones at the gates of the mansion, so many that it supposedly sounded like a hailstorm. It took the rest of that day through the night for the city magistrate to restore order on the streets. One of the things about these periods of reform during the Tokugawa era was that the reform drives themselves never officially ended. Instead, the rules just stopped being enforced, edicts remained on the books but were no longer referenced, and projects were quietly abandoned. And that is what happened to Mizuno's tenpo reforms. None of the social rules were ever abandoned. Grounded in classic Confucian thinking, how could they be? The agechi-rei was never rescinded, that would mean admitting it was a mistake, and though no announcement was ever made of a policy change, policies like the draining of Inbanuma were quietly defunded and abandoned. Mizuno himself would eventually be exiled from Edo and stripped of many of his lands, and would die in obscurity in 1851. So now we're left with our three questions from the start of the show. Why did the tempo reforms fail, did they seriously address the problems facing the Bakufu, and what can we learn from it all? For the first, I think the answer is pretty obvious. The Tenpo reforms were wildly unpopular. They could survive that when it was just commoners that really hated them. But decisions like the Agechire made the reforms unpopular with Samurai too, and when everyone hated them, well clearly the reforms were doomed. As for the second two questions, I think the answer is more complicated. Mizuno clearly tried to address what he saw as the problems with the Tokugawa system, but with some distance, I think it's clear to us that he missed the mark pretty badly. Mizuno clearly had a conservative view of what was going wrong with Japan, grounded in his Confucian worldview and education, and the truth is I don't think he was entirely wrong in his diagnosis. Class relations were an issue. The fact that many samurai had fallen on hard times and felt their class prerogatives slipping away radicalized a lot of them and led them into anti-Tokugawa movements a few decades later. But Mizuno's social policies treated the symptoms of samurai problems rather than the causes. His economic plan, meanwhile, was clearly not that well thought out. And his political reforms were more concerned with centralizing power and protecting against internal revolt, hence the bans on gunnery training and building foreign ships, than with just straight-up arming the country against attack by the West. The Tempo Reforms show us, I think, that even by the 1840s, the bakufu was not entirely helpless. These were, after all, ambitious projects to undertake, but Mizuno as a leader lacked a clear vision of what was needed, particularly compared to domains which eventually came together to overthrow the Tokugawa. During this period, they were also engaged in their own reforms, focused far more on administrative efficiency, clear economic policy, and preparations for war, then on regulating the size of children's dolls. There were people in the Shogun's government who shared these practical concerns, but they were not in charge. Mizuno was, and when he stepped down, he was replaced with one Abe Masahiro, who would remain in charge until the arrival of Commodore Perry, and who I once saw described as, quote, sober, upright, conciliatory, and totally lacking in initiative, unquote, so not really the man for this era. Ultimately, I think this is the lesson of the tempo reforms. Who is calling the shots really does matter. A different person than Mizuno could have accomplished something very different, and in the end, who knows where that might have led us. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to listener Jesus for donating to support the show, to join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at that's isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R dot or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for part one of what I'm planning to be a four-part retrospective on Japan's Democratic Party, with hopefully none of those episodes breaking the 40-minute mark. Now if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go drink some tea.